Oh, good afternoon. Uh, let me welcome you once again to another session of IPS's Singapore Perspectives, organized by the Institute of Policy Studies. Uh, the focus of this year's SP is City. So just some quick housekeeping matters first. Uh, first, let me just remind you that the event is open for media coverage. Uh, we'll be hearing from our speakers for about 30 minutes, and then we'll have a good time engaging them with a variety of questions that you may have. And uh, we welcome you to put in your questions in the conference platform. Uh, there is a question submission section on this forum page. So if you're familiar with that, you probably have used it already earlier. Uh, you can do you can put in your questions at any time during the session. Uh, now we invite as many questions and all of your questions. Uh, we may not be able to to have all of them answered. We will definitely endeavor to have quite a few of them answered. Uh, but we also want to remind you that we want uh, your contributions to be respectful, placed in a safe manner, and of course focus on the main issues at hand. IPS reserves the right to ensure this happens, and we want to maintain a safe and respectful space in, in all the chats, the QA functions. Just want to remind us about uh, that's an important aspect of having a good uh, conversation together. Uh, our session today focuses on the city as a cosmopolitan space. I'm sure some ideas get evoked when you hear the term cosmopolitan city. Uh, we have ideas of how that city will look like, both in terms of whether it's architecture, urban planning, uh, the values which are invoked in that space, and of course, the type of people that you have, uh, their orientation, their broader outlook. Uh, as it's been quite clear for more than two decades or so, uh, Singapore has tried to leverage its position as an important node in the economy, uh, global economy, you see uh, attempt to be a strategic hub for many large businesses or industries. And uh, there's also been a very clear strategy that the city has tried to attract uh, those uh, quite a good portion who would be described as global citizens. Uh, with that, of course, you've got population growth and you see greater diversity. And this has implications for both how we see the culture of the city and how we identify with the city. Uh, some see greater flu fluidity in terms of how identity and culture play out. And of course, uh, you can see naturally more and more spaces of contestation that arise when you have people of different places and different orientations in the same place. So naturally, there are quite a few questions that come out. And uh, uh, so one, of course, how does positioning itself as an open cosmopolitan city uh, affect our identity as a nation? And uh, how increasingly our diverse cultures and identity negotiated in this local context? And of course, what groups are included and excluded in the city's state's discourse of cosmopolitanism. Of course, we all have had, I mean, some of us might have remembered some of the national day rallies many years ago when uh, we were introduced, at least for a, a national level, to words like cosmopolitanism and also the word heartlander. Uh, and of course, that was coined to describe the two different orientations which we have in the city, states, population, those who are very oriented to what is more global and those who really feel a lot more at home with what is local. Uh, and of course, it's interesting to look at whether such, uh, I mean, the dichotomy between the two groups are really a stark. Uh, is it useful? Is it accurate now to think in terms of cosmopolitanism or cosmopolitan and the heartlander? And mind you, of course, there are many other interesting dimensions that come with cosmopolitanism. And I think increasingly with digitalization, you see more of that. There are many other thoughts that we can have on the subject. And I'm very happy that we have two very important speakers who will be able to reflect on these 
ideas uh, on cosmopolitanism and the city. Uh, we will have uh, Ms. Cheng Huini, who is Chief Executive Officer of the National, uh, National Heritage Board. Uh, since joining the NHB in May 2017, she has overseen the formulation and implementation of our heritage plan with strategic trust and initiatives in four pillars. Uh, prior to joining NHB, Ms. Chang held senior positions in the ministries of national development, education, health, and finance. We also have Associate Professor Elaine Ho, uh, who is from the Department of Geography and who is a senior research fellow at the Asia Research Institute at NUS. Uh, research addresses how citizenship is changing as a result of multi-directional migration flows in the Asia-Pacific region. She's, been, she's the author of some important books, and uh, she is an editor of some important journals. So very happy that we have both of them who we'll spend the time today. And uh, we'll start with uh, Ms. Cheng, and then we'll hear from Professor Ho. Over to you, Ms. Cheng. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, so it is my pleasure to speak to you this uh, afternoon. And I'll be speaking to you from uh, the heritage perspective, someone who's involved in the heritage space. Singapore has been a cosmopolitan place for a long time. Um, no, it has been, there's been evidence of travelers settling here, doing business for hundreds of years, even before 1819. And cosmopolitanism has, is commonly associated with modernity, progressiveness, seemingly the antithesis of heritage. But it is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as simply containing people of different types from different countries and uh, being influenced by their culture. So cosmopolitanism is um, very much part of our heritage and has been, in fact, one of the strongest markers of our identity for centuries. And it's everywhere we look. You know, the often talked about multiculturalism um, has evolved from ways of immigration, influencing much of our daily life, food, language, national policies. Our architecture consists of an eclectic Creole classicism style that blends between European and the local architectural traditions from pre-colonial to colonial period and side by side with the modernist and contemporary buildings. And our urban planning traces its roots, the first wave of uh, British colonial planning model, the most famous of which Jackson Plan still shapes our city today. And it's the reason why we have our heritage precincts like Chinatown, Kampong Glam, and Little India. So together, these myriad influences contribute to Singaporean identity. I think the challenge is how can heritage strengthen this identity without stifling the development? We can see that the identity has evolved over the years. And just like heritage, identity must adapt to remain relevant and for the communities to thrive. These communities must avoid fossilization where heritage becomes just relic of the past and not part of the daily life. However, identity is very complex. It's, it's multi-layered. 
Every individual belongs to multiple identity markers, ethnicity, language, religion, age, education, just to name a few. And all of us belong to you know, different groups and subgroups in society. So moving up from families, neighborhoods, interest groups, to nation, each with its distinct identity. I think it's no exaggeration to say that all of us are multiple hyphenates. So naturally, these differences lead to tensions and disagreements sometimes. But it is these differences that define our cosmopolitanism and in turn, our heritage and our collective identity in something that's worth cultivating. So this means that our goal is acculturation in which different groups maintain their distinct cultural identities. And while uh, sharing a common sense of rootedness, our goal is not assimilation, which demands conforming to the same norms. I think the world has become increasingly polarized. And Singapore is not immune. And I believe that's where our work in heritage can make a difference. So by promoting understanding, appreciation of different cultures, we not only sort of safeguard practices or expressions, but we reinforce the pride in identity and engender this intercultural understanding and harmony. I think it's harder to hate someone right, when you see the beauty, the richness of uh, the, the culture. And Singapore is already home to different cultures. I think challenge for people to appreciate those of others alongside our own. So there's therefore this uh, very fine balance to be achieved between embracing differences and having this unified common identity that can call our own. So National Heritage Board adopts a multi-pronged approach to achieve this. Our heritage institutions, Malay Heritage Centre, Indian Heritage Centre, and Sunaksen Nanyang Memorial Hall, that hubs of the respective communities, while also allowing others to learn about their culture through special exhibition programs and festivals. The Paranaka Museum showcases a very unique Southeast Asian example of cultural hybridity. It's a community that emerged out of uh, historical intermarriages. And it's the blending of uh, these cultural and ethnic influences. A very closely related phenomenon is uh, Eurasian. And uh, the heritage is featured in the Eurasian Heritage Gallery. This is a member of a museum roundtable. And museum roundtables, as well as um, heritage grants, are means by which National Heritage Board provides supports for this kind of grassroots initiatives to promote different culture. Of course, you know, celebrating the differences is just half of the equation. The other half of the equation is developed unity, which um, does not overwhelm individuality. I think the majority of Singaporeans from uh, uh, 
migrant stock you know, as immigrants that originally seeking a livelihood here as journals of you know, different cultures uh, existing side by side. So we are not naturally Singaporean. Instead, our identity is an amalgamation of various influences from geography and time. I think our recent archaeological finds uh, have uncovered settlements that dates back 700 years. You know, it shows that our history is not as shallow as originally assumed. But at the same time, our relative position as a small, you know, a young city-state is not without its advantages. Our significant shared memory is relatively fresh. Uh, we have um, cleaner state to begin with, and living in close proximity also means that there are more chances of fostering better understanding of each other's culture, not if managed carefully. So I guess where multi-agency placemaking uh, efforts comes into place, especially in the creation of common spaces, parks, hawker centers, where people of different backgrounds can mingle on a daily basis. I think this also extends to efforts uh, like integrating the new citizens and PR into our local culture. And there are other examples like you know, bike uh, lingualism. So the key is really to exploit all opportunities to unite rather than to divide. Uh, at NHB, uh, National Museum of Singapore focuses on shared national experiences, values, history, identity, also exhibitions and uh, programs. And our Asian Civilization Museum has a more pan-Asia scope and explores historical reconnections between civilizations and cultures. We also have programs like uh, you know, Battle for Singapore that commemorates the fall of Singapore and also National Day celebration. So this emphasizes shared national experiences. So together, this moves beyond the celebration of differences to forging and affirming a overarching and unifying national identity. Of course, in our various efforts, it's just quite critical to bear in mind that heritage and culture must continually evolve to remain relevant. And one tangible example is our national monuments, like the uh, former city hall building. The use has been adapted from being a home of municipal, uh, colonial municipal uh, council, this current reincarnation as a national gallery of Singapore. And there are many such uh, examples. And this is also true of intangible cultural heritage. Intangible cu cultural heritage refers to you know, living expressions that pass down from generation to generation. It's potentially more fragile, more malleable than the tangible counterpart. Uh, hawker culture, for example, is very different from uh, what it was in the 1960s. From itinerant and hygienic street vendors, this becomes a source of national pride. Uh, housed in dedicated community spaces for people to bond over the shared passion for food. And new dishes that influence from cuisines from different parts of the world 
have been added to the Chinese, Malay, and Indian sand. And it reflects our uh, uh, sort of evolving multiculturalism. So it's important that our efforts facilitate this evolution and at the same time fortify the core of a culture so that you know, there's a, a focal point to refer to as changes occur. So NHB Stewards of Incon uh, Intangible Culture Heritage Awards recognizes the traditionalist practitioners who are dedicated to the transmission of the practices and um, include um, a grant for them to conduct the outreach activities. While Craft X designs uh, initiatives they put in place um, pairs traditional craftsmen with modern designers so that you know, we promote traditional craftsmen and explore opportunities for new market for them. So both these initiatives seek to safeguard traditions, practices as core components of our cultural identities, while also encouraging transmission and adaptation to contemporary needs. Well, the, finally, I, I cannot overemphasize the importance of empowering our community to celebrate our heritage and to determine the collective identity it should be. Um, involving the community really brings people together and provides a sense of ownership and is called much of the work at NHB. It's at the heart of the development of our SG heritage plan. At the institutional level, about one third of our artifacts from the recently reopened museum, uh, Changi Chapel Museum, are community donated. And our Indian Heritage Centre has launched a series of community co-created exhibitions, the latest being Sick in Singapore, A Story Untold. So you know, we collaborate very, very closely with uh, our community on programs and festivals in our heritage precincts. We also have this um, street corner heritage gallery scheme. There's a, a mini museums in heritage businesses and more are being planned not even in Gelang uh, Sirai, Kreta Egg, and so on. So, in conclusion, uh, we can see that cosmopolitanism is very much part of our heritage. And heritage is vital in defining identity in the years ahead. Heritage, however, is a double-edged sword can be used to justify exclusivity, insularity, and antagonism, as much as it's a way to celebrate diversity, promote understanding, and as a medium to show that through all these differences, it can be more than the sum of our parts. But to ensure that uh, the role you we know, play is a positive one, requires sensitivity, requires understanding, and requires an open mind. So for NHB, in our next iteration of our SG Heritage Plan, we'll continue to have a conversation with uh, Singaporeans, our uh, partners, stakeholders. And this year, we'll be inviting Singaporeans to contribute the stories, the objects on our independent history, 
you know, founding values of the Bureau of the Founders Memorial. So, you know, we value our inputs and we, because the heritage after all you know, belongs to all of us. So ultimately, if stewarded well, heritage and culture contributes to our cosmopolitan branding and appeal and makes Singapore a distinctive, livable city where the differences, uh, diversity is celebrated and come together as a very strong, unique Singaporean identity. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Chang. That was very helpful laying out how heritage has really helped to forge and affirm the kind of national identity in Singapore and of course what NHP is doing in terms of promoting and preserving that. I will hear from uh, Professor Ho now. Okay. Thank you, uh, Matthew, uh, for moderating and uh, Ms. Chang for setting up the context. Uh, I'm glad that you highlighted uh, how Singapore has been historically diverse and that our heritage continues to evolve. Uh, I think this is very relevant for what I would like to share today. Uh, and I'm going to enter this discussion focusing on migration trends and uh, how that has contributed to changing diversity uh, in Singapore. So I think, first of all, uh, we should establish, you know, what do we understand by a cosmopolitan city? Cosmopolitanism is uh, often associated with urban branding and placemaking. So what comes to mind are places like Marina Bay Sands or uh, Resorts World Sentosa. But what I want to highlight here that apart from urban branding and placemaking, migration policy is also integral to Singapore's cosmopolitanism today. Namely, uh, the policy focus has been to attract international talent, but also not forgetting the low-skilled migrants who are needed to build and support Singapore's cosmopolitan infrastructure. Culturally, cosmopolitanism means to be open to diversity and accepting of difference. But therein lies the tension of being both a global city and a nation state. Or put differently, a tension between respecting cultural difference and maintaining social cohesion through integration. I think the term that uh, Ms. Chang uh, used was acculturation. And uh, I should also uh, clarify that uh, integration is different from assimilation uh, in, that in the sense that integration uh, encourages different cultural groups to maintain their identities while still um, uh, identifying with a national identity. Nonetheless, integration continues to be a very contested uh, concept and practice. Uh, before I uh, speak more on integration and social cohesion, I want to uh, make clear what are the sources of diversity in Singapore today. So, of course, we have immigration. Uh, immigration has resulted in diversity in nationalities, ethnicities, cultures, and occupational profiles in cosmopolitan Singapore. But we also mustn't forget that emigration, the outflow of Singaporeans, contributes to Singapore's cosmopolitan character. So Singaporeans have been moving abroad and returning to Singapore with international exposure. Some are called cosmopolitans, uh, and some of them marry foreign spouses and return with their families. Thirdly, within Singapore, even amongst those who do not move, we are seeing an increase in international marriages. One in four citizen marriages were with non-residents, and they have also uh, produced bicultural children in their families. Being a cosmopolitan city poses challenges to notions of national identity and certain aspects of competition. So as many of you would be aware, Singaporeans sometimes uh, feel that uh, there is competition for jobs, sometimes unfairly. I think this was uh, uh, discussed in an IPS survey in 2019. Uh, there's also concern that uh, foreigners may be benefiting unfairly from welfare. And thirdly, the injection of cultural difference. For example, 
um, the foreigners, uh, the, the migrants' values, the languages they speak, uh, the accents, their working styles and everyday norms. Uh, some people are concerned about the separate social circles that migrants may have from Singaporeans. And uh, some migrants uh, may also have a superficial understanding of Singapore's multicultural ethos. So these are all uh, you know, points of contention when it comes to thinking about uh, Singapore uh, being positioned uh, as a global city as well as a nation state. So with this wider context given, I would like to suggest uh, four interventions into discussions of cosmopolitanism. And I hope I will have time to cover all four, but if not, uh, I did tell the moderator that I will stop on time and we can carry on with um, the other interventions during Q&A. But let me try to cover all four within the remaining time. Now, first, I think it is important to add nuance to current debates on difference making. So currently, uh, debates tend to assume a Singaporean versus others dichotomy. But research that I've carried out and co-published with Associate Professor Lavania Kathirevelu at uh, NTU indicates that there are social divisions within immigrant groups too. So immigrant groups, in other words, are not homogenous. For example, there are differentiations that immigrant groups create amongst themselves based on timing of arrival. So earlier cohorts of immigrants may feel that they have a greater sense of belonging and have integrated better um, than the newer recent immigrants. So we found that even amongst immigrant groups, the people we interviewed would assert superiority or over co-immigrants. In other words, what we want to highlight here is uh, we need to move past uh, the Singaporean versus others dichotomy to consider other aspects of difference making as well. So in a paper we published, we proposed the idea, and bear with me for this um, rather long term, polysemic immigrant hierarchies. Okay, so polysemic uh, refers to the multiple faces of these immigrant hierarchies. And what we wanted to emphasize are that hierarchies of difference making uh, across Singaporeans as well as immigrant groups are highly flexible and fluid. And sometimes flexibly, uh, people who draw these hierarchies or assert differences, they will draw on distinctions to do with race, visa status, skills, income, and claims over who arrived first or later, or who has integrated better amongst the immigrants themselves. So the point I wish to make here is thinking through the fluidity or the polysemic character of immigrant hierarchies can help us move past the Singaporean versus others dichotomy to acknowledge that difference making has multiplied in Singapore in very real ways. Now, what do we do with this multiplication of difference? This is the second point I want to share. We should continue to build social anchors in urban spaces for diverse groups. What are social anchors? Social anchors are urban spaces in Singapore, which are important for enabling Singaporeans and immigrants, both old and new immigrants, to establish footholds that can help them to connect diverse identities, provide emotional security, and foster integration. Such social anchors could be in housing, um, where immigrants and Singaporeans from different backgrounds intermingle in HDB estates, for example, such, such social anchors could also be sh about shared experiences in schools, since many of the immigrants, as well as Singaporeans, have young children in schools, and the parents can interact with one another. Schools also provide a place of socialization for children. Another social anchor we can continue to build are workplaces, where immigrants and Singaporeans both work and end up spending working time with one another. Another kind, the last kind of uh, social anchor I want to highlight here are volunteer and leisure spaces. So these are spaces where uh, immigrants at, of different backgrounds as well as Singaporeans can co-mingle 
and get to know uh, one another's uh, habits, values, and lifestyles better. So social anchors are the spaces in which we can, we can cultivate uh, deeper embeddedness. Nonetheless, we also need to recognize that the significance of these social anchors will change over the life course of both immigrants and Singaporeans. Now, this then leads me to my third point. I want to suggest that we need to move from thinking about integration as an achieved but homogeneous condition towards recognizing that there are differentiated embeddedness, meaning that immigrants uh, as well as Singaporeans, they can become embedded in those social anchors uh, in different ways, to different extents, at different points in time. In other words, these social anchors are constantly evolving in our life biographies as well. So differentiated embeddedness refers to how immigrants achieve to varying degrees the functional, relational, emotional, and civic aspects of integration. Let me give you some examples. So for example, younger immigrant working adults, they may be more embedded in the workplace, such as by forming relational and emotional bonds with their colleagues, than say in the neighborhood where they live with their neighbors. So in these cases, it doesn't mean that these immigrants are not embedded, they are not integrating, but they have different degrees of embeddedness and integration in the various spaces that they use in their lives. Embeddedness will change across time as people's life biographies change. For example, the school as a social anchor may decrease in importance when young children grow up. And instead, parents, uh, especially mothers, for example, uh, return to the workplace, and then the workplace becomes a more so important social anchor in their lives. Or, for instance, when the parent finds that their time is freed up uh, because their children have grown up, and they can continue uh, to find time instead to do volunteer work and uh, participate in hobbies. So those volunteer spaces and um, hobby spaces then become more important social anchors in their life. So integration, in other words, takes place over the immigrant's life course. It doesn't happen in a snapshot, nor does it necessarily happen in one particular sector or life space. And I move on then to my last point. I think I'm doing very well with time. <laughs> Lastly, many Singaporeans fear that immigrants only have a temporary interest in Singapore and that they will eventually remigrate. Now, if Singapore is to be a global city and a cosmopolitan city, we need to accept that this will happen. However, remigration is often equated with a lack of commitment. Indeed, not all new immigrants will remain in Singapore for the long term, but this can be turned into an advantage for cosmopolitan Singapore. Remember when I started, I said cosmopolitanism has meant that Singapore is a migration hub of both inflows and outflows of people, both immigrants as well as emigrants. Singaporeans are going overseas and immigrants may remigrate later in their life course. Now, if we turn to the examples of some other places, such as Ireland, Scotland, or New Zealand, these places have actually treated remigration as an opportunity. How so? They have approached remigration uh, as an opportunity to develop what is called an affinity diaspora. Affinity refers to connections that are born out of biographical ties. For example, when an immigrant spends time to resident in a country, over a period of time, they cultivate emotional attachments to the place and the people there. And they then, when they remigrate to another country or when they return to their home country, they then can become informal ambassadors as part of the affinity diaspora. So I think um, on this note, I want to uh, conclude by 
sharing these four interventions into discussions of cosmopolitanism. And I will just recap them briefly here. So for example, recognizing uh, the first intervention is on recognizing the multiplication of difference in cosmopolitan Singapore so that we don't end up reinforcing dichotomous framings of identity, such as Singaporeans versus others. Secondly, that we should consider capitalizing on social anchors in space, uh, urban space, to encourage embedding of different forms of integration uh, across different sectors and urban spaces in Singapore. Thirdly, accepting that differentiated embedding happens. It is part and parcel of life. And embedding changes over time as uh, immigrants' life biographies evolve as well. And lastly, fourthly, that uh, we can consider uh, treating remigration uh, in a more positive uh, framing by mobilizing what uh, I have termed here as the affinity diaspora. So capitalizing on the opportunities that re-migrants from Singapore uh, can uh, present uh, by becoming informal ambassadors for our city-state. And these four interventions, I hope, can pave new ways of approaching the topic of growing social diversity in Singapore. Thank you. Thank you very much, Elaine. Uh, thanks also for focusing uh, on this bigger topic on cosmopolitanism and, and looking at the issue of immigration, also re-immigration and providing us some uh, useful interventions to, to ponder over. Uh, we have, uh, I think, a number of questions have already been submitted, and I want to encourage those of you who would like to put in more questions, would you please go ahead and uh, put those questions on the conference platform. We'll definitely want to take some of those. Uh, I'll probably just be trying to uh, I mean, run over different questions as they come and uh, try to group them together if there are many questions. But I guess at a start, I'll just ask questions which I think some have, have directed specifically to different speakers. So I'll try to, to look at those. Um, yeah, I'll start off with uh, some of the discussion that Ms. Chang had earlier, uh, looking at the issue about uh, heritage uh, in the Singapore context. And some of these questions are very, very, uh, I mean, specific and heritage in the context of cosmopolitanism. Uh, and I think one question from Jonathan Tan here is uh, how we can better highlight the histories or, and traditions of indigenous groups. So looking at, for instance, the Orang Lawad or Orang Sileta, for instance, and what place they have in cosmopolitan Singaporean identity. So I'm just wondering whether uh, Ms. Chang have any thoughts about that and of the work of NHB in trying to, to look at heritage in this particular context. This happens to be the most top-worded question at this point of time. So <laughs> love to hear your thoughts, Ms. Chang. Thank you for the question. Uh, yes, indeed, uh, this is a, an important uh, topic. And we have been um, making efforts to do so. And think in the Malay Heritage Centre, they have uh, different programs, storytelling uh, involving the group. But I think one of the challenges that we face is that for Professor Orion Law, there's very little uh, cultural artifacts. Um, I remember, recall that the National Museum of Singapore had this uh, exhibitions on the Old New World, and um, they have uh, quite a lot of challenges sourcing you know, for the artifacts to display. To, to present, and unlike the, so the, during the colonial period, uh, uh, really quite a, a, a lot of resources available uh, for presentation. So that uh, 
probably account for the imbalance no, between the, the presentation of materials between the different communities. But we certainly recognize that uh, it's important. And um, we have uh, um, uh, provided the different heritage grants and encouraged different groups to conduct research, to document the, the, the history of the different community, indigenous group in, included. So we'll uh, definitely try to uh, uh, encourage more to, to come forward and uh, to, to tell the, the story uh, as best as we can. And if, you know, we also welcome contribution if you have any, because in the museum world, um, one of the key challenges is always uh, objects. You know? How do you have the objects to, to tell the story? Actually, even in our, uh, now the development of the uh, Founders Memorial, um, as I mentioned earlier, we are trying to invite Singaporeans to, you know, to contribute stories as well as objects. And it, again, I think uh, the Singaporean um, uh, culture is quite different. We Maybe because of our very limited uh, urban space, we tend to discard. You know, we, 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 we do not have the tradition of preserving and keeping you know, our heirloom and our uh, 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 treasures and objects at home. So um, this is something that we will have to address and uh, we'll really try to actively encourage Singaporeans to contribute, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. not just the, the stories, but also the objects, so that you know, through these objects, we can tell a better journey, better stories of the journey that we've gone through. Thank you. If I just can follow up with that that point, uh, Ms. Chang, I think there have been questions about quite a few questions about heritage, and uh, so I, I thought of just grouping some of those questions and just having your thoughts, and then we'll start dealing with the other questions of, of migration. Uh, and I think some of them have got to do with the fact that you just alluded to that. You, to start off with, we don't have enough of whether it's heirlooms or artifacts from, I mean, from previous years, and so I think. Uh, people are looking about looking at the fact that there's concern about losing track of our rich culture. And I think somebody's uh, uh, when when C Tang is asking, uh, how do we? I mean, especially do this in the space of educational institutions uh, to promote this kind of cultural histories. Uh, is it enough being done? Somebody's also asking about the Chinese uh, Chinatown Heritage Center, which I think has remained closed. Uh, not very familiar about whether this is the case, but uh, and, and whether NHB is doing something about ensuring that the heritage and the culture of Chinatown, for instance, is preserved. Some quick questions about cultural heritage uh, before we move on to other things. Yeah, go ahead. I certainly fully agree that uh, um, we have to start from young, and schools is most important, uh, one of the most important stakeholders, and. It, in fact, we were very, very pleased that uh, we're actually about to launch the museum-based learning. Yes, we'll have every cohort of uh, uh, students, can we say, to visit the museum, National Museum of Singapore, uh, to, to visit Asian Civilization Museum, and set one students to visit the National Museum of Singapore. Unfortunately, it was uh, disrupted by the pandemics, and now we are trying to pivot it to a digital uh, maybe a digital, the hybrid forms, because it's very, very critical. And I mentioned about the shared national experiences. And I think it's um, uh, very valuable for the entire cohort of the students to go through the same experience. Because from my um, observations, 
there are some families will always bring the children to the museums every school holiday. And they are frequent visitors and very, very uh, grateful, very appreciative of uh, these families. But at the same time, there are also others who have never had the opportunity to step into the museum at all. So I think this museum-based learning, this cohort-based learning, to me, is a very, very critical um, initiative. And I really look forward to uh, this uh, programs being resumed you know, as soon as possible. And I think if we can inculcate this kind of uh, museum-going culture you know, right from an early age, and I think um, probably also aware that we are repositioning the Philippine Museum as a dedicated children museum and reopening at the end of this year. And again, we want to position it as a starter museum um, you know, so that uh, the students of, children will cultivate this uh, museum going culture right from uh, the preschool uh, experiences. So, um, so Hopefully, you know, through the different, and just I also mentioned about the museum roundtable. So it's beyond the museum that is uh, under the purview of National Heritage Board. We're also trying to form a network. And through the museum roundtable, we'll try to you know, uh, provide this network to also promote the smaller, more lesser known uh, museums so that we increase the diversity of uh, the whole landscape and provide the capability development and sharing of best practices and resources across the entire sector. Um, so I, th I think uh, it, it again requires you know, the whole of uh, almost society effort, families, parents, teachers, communities to um, engender this sort of uh, culture. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Cheng. I mean, the, the Chinatown question, the, the Chinatown music. Yes, um, we, we are aware. I think they are very much impacted by the uh, uh, pandemics. And we are in discussion you know, with uh, the, um, uh, STB you know, and to see how best we can leverage that. But talking about Chinatown, there are a lot of uh, uh, activists and... Um, we have uh, our signature uh, heritage festival, um, and Trenda is always one of our key stakeholders. And um, you know, I know we have uh, uh, some of them you know, in the heritage uh, uh, society that is very, very actively involved. And actually, some of them are, are, are grassroots in initiatives, and we would like to partner them and provide as much support as possible to make it happen. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Cheng. Uh, I think there's quite a few questions that now look at issues to do with culture and cultural differences. I think this, this comes from the discussion of heritage, obviously, and also when you think about cosmopolitanism in terms of migrants who uh, come to Singapore. I think one, one question that, that come in is really this idea about the contradiction of promoting these identities. And Ms. Cheng, you just discussed some of the work that Singapore is doing, NHP is doing, and uh, there's even Chinatown and different parts of Singapore to try to make sure that we are attuned to some of our, I mean, our heritage. So of course, there are questions about uh, whether, you know, more theoretical level, whether this re-promoting of this cultural difference uh, really got kind of reinforces a pride in particular kinds of identity. And that then is antithetical to this 
notion of developing the Singaporean identity. Uh, and of course, I think people are asking and everybody is wondering about the notion about if you think about the cosmopolitan space and of course, a myriad of cultures, then how do you kind of balance some of that? And uh, isn't this uh, not contradictory? Maybe I'll just start with, with uh, Professor Ho, if you can give your thoughts about that. And, and maybe, of course, in terms of you think about this and, of course, the, con uh, the influx of migrants over the years and how this plays out. Okay. Um... I would say that uh, I think the core question here is whether is there a contradiction between promoting particular identities um, and would that compromise then what we hope to develop or maintain as our national identity? Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Uh, I think you know Singapore's strength lies precisely in its uh, openness to plurality. So uh, the Singapore identity is very much one that is stitched together by different cultures, different migrant groups, uh, even from time past. So I think the challenge lies in uh, reminding Singaporeans of this plurality uh, historically that has made Singapore into what it is today. So I think uh, what I referred to earlier as the Singapore versus others uh, kind of dichotomy comes about because we have been brought up, uh, socialized into uh, subscribing to a version of our national identity. And it's easier to just fall back, you know, on what we know, right? Rather than recognize that or accept that that national identity continues to evolve through new migration. And so, some of these uh, immigrant groups have today uh, decided to become Singapore permanent residents or Singapore citizens. So while they may still maintain aspects of their home identities uh, through the research uh, which I have done with our mainland Chinese immigrants uh, and then um, uh, Associate Prof. Kati Ragalu with our South Asian immigrants, uh, we've, we found that uh, the earlier cohorts of uh, immigrants from these two places, they actually had rather strong ideas and ideals okay, of what being Singaporean means. And I think that surprised us because I, at least for me, prior to carrying out the research, you know, I also had that framing of um, you know, Singaporeans versus migrants. And then I realized through carrying out the research that actually the older uh, cohorts of uh, immigrants have a, have a very strong sense of, you know, we are already Singaporean, but whether or not Singaporeans recognize them as such, you know, is another matter for discussion. Uh, as I mentioned during my uh, presentation, uh, we did also find that these older cohorts of uh, immigrants, uh, they have stereotypes about the newer immigrants. So they themselves are asserting, you know, a form of a difference making and hierarchies of these uh, difference making as well. So I think herein lies the challenge, right? How do we accommodate these multiple waves of identities that are in the process of uh, bringing, uh, uh, creating, right, a newer version of the Singaporean identity? So I wouldn't necessarily think of it as a contradiction. It is certainly challenging, but uh, this is precisely what Singapore is. It's a nation in change. Thank, thanks, Elaine. Uh, if, if I can just continue with a little bit more of that set of questions to do with uh, how we look at ourselves as uh, multicultural and how do we kind of incorporate uh, I mean, or, or deal with the fact that the, the various heritages, cultures, traditions, which are here, I think there are quite a few questions which uh, deal with that set uh, of, of issues and especially thinking about uh, being a cosmopolitan society. One big question, which is now the top rate voted question now, is really this idea about 
the CMIO still relevant in a cosmopolitan society. Uh, so that's one. And then, of course, uh, closely related to it is also this notion about, uh, I think, uh, let me just see who asked that question. I think Kalpana Vignesha uh, asked, uh, uh, in not just CMIO, I think she's referring to the fact that we have entrenched a somewhat contrived triculturalism. I, I guess what she means by triculturalism might be uh, CMI uh, without an O. And we'll be, be ready to embrace proper multiculturalism to echo the multiple ways of difference making. Uh, so I think there's some questions about our broader notions about multiculturalism here. Uh, especially as it plays out in a more cosmopolitan city. Uh, if I can just have your thoughts first, uh, uh, Elaine, and then we'll turn to Ms. Chang's thoughts about it. Yeah, this uh, debate on uh, CMIO is one that just doesn't go away, does it? I remember when I was uh, on, on IPS Perspectives uh, many years ago now, was something that I had brought up. Uh, and uh, my, my point at that time was, uh, even within these categories of Chinese and Malay, uh, it's no longer um, as, as straightforward as it used to be because we have new citizens uh, who are of Chinese ethnicity, but uh, they were previously you know, from mainland China. And so they still have these transnational identities. Uh, and then similarly for uh, the Indian category as well. And there are various levels of differentiation that are happening within these categories. And at the same time, the others categories probably growing as well. So uh, I would say that, um, CMIO is a policy framework, right? And our government leaders have uh, made clear that uh, this policy framework is necessary for managing uh, difference in Singapore. Uh, of course, the lived realities of uh, these kinds of categorizations, uh, categorizations um, challenge you know, the very categorizations that uh, we have become so familiar with. So I would say that uh, CMIO remains relevant as a policy framework, but it's one that, you know, at in, at an appropriate juncture, we may want to revisit from time to time to see whether it is the still it is still the um, most appropriate way to manage our social difference in Singapore. Uh, I think, in particular, when it comes to uh, concerns, uh, say over uh, what identity actually means in Singapore today. Yeah, so I think that that uh, the policy framework, you know, and what's happening on the ground uh, could meet better, you know, in the future. Yeah, go ahead. Check. My my take on it is yeah, this I think this issue will not go away, and uh, I agree that CMIO is really a policy framework, without which I think um, we will not be able to carry out say the ethnic integration policy in HDB, and uh, I think the question I'll ask myself is whether we are better off with or without the CMIO uh, at this point, and it has served us well. The question is, of course, I just Elaine also mentioned now about a quarter you know, of citizens, a serving family with citizens of a different uh, nation. So with this, um, uh, and also in the ethnic, so I think it's one third you know, in the uh, racial uh, marriages. If we say contrast our situation with France, which adopt a racially blind policy, right? They're not even politically correct to ask about the ethnic group. It has resulted in a very racially segregated communities. And uh, for me, it's quite clear that it's not desirable. And that, that will be the consequences, that will be the outcomes. So the question is really, you know, it has served us well, you know, you know um, we are able to have uh, a very well-balanced, racially mixed uh, uh, HDB estate. Uh, so is it better for us to continue with it or discard it altogether at this point in time? 
Of course, uh, it's getting more complex. We'll have to uh, update it. And the question is, do we increase you know, the subcategories from four to five to six to 10? Would that you know, improve the situation? And of course, it's not a perfect uh, policy framework. Um, there are a lot of uh, um, shortcomings. You know, I think we, we, we heard about uh, the difficulties, the challenges faced, especially by the minority groups you know, in the resale of their uh, HGB, uh, HGB uh, houses. So I, I think it's, it's challenging. We have to see how best address the shortcoming, but whether we throw the baby out of the Instead, that's a, a different issue. So, so me, it's a necessary policy for at this point in time. You know, as whether it's better to have it or without it, but not perfect. It continues continuously um, refine, upgrade. But I think the challenge is how 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 to do so. Yeah, yeah I certainly think that that the devil's in the details when it comes to this part. Yeah. I think I think that the question that. Uh, you know, many have asked, especially when it comes to, and you hear this regularly from immigrants who come in, if you, they don't fit in the boxes very clear, at least the CMI box, then the sense uh, mm. that they're not welcome. Or the Singaporean or the, just I mean, the, the Singaporean who is not so exposed to a global landscape uh, sees them in some way or another out of place within Singapore. So I'm just wondering whether there's enough effort that goes mm. on to, to educate the Singaporean about that. Uh, I mean, the fact that our system and our nation is more than just, I mean, a very fossilized way of looking at the Chinese, Malay, Indian. And as Elaine just mentioned just now, even among new immigrants, the notion of Chinese-ness, Indian-ness might be quite different from, um, I mean, what, what people might see from different places or at different points of time. Uh, so maybe I just thought, I mean, it, it, are we doing enough on that regard in terms of helping to, to reshape our Singaporean mind to embrace this broader diversity? Even if we keep the policy framework of a CMIO, is there something that we can do in terms of broadening the minds? I, I don't know whether the museums are working towards some of that or any other kind of uh, activist groups are working on that. So any thoughts, uh, Professor Ho, if you have thoughts, uh, Ms. Cheng? Go ahead, Elaine. I think it's, it's really a very, very uh, com complex issue. And I think this um, you know, issue of migration and the effects on the, the sort of host culture, and it's, 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 it's not unique to Singapore, and it's also not new to us. Because it's, um, you know, the, the, the clash of the culture, the clash of the way of life, it's just very uh, complex. And uh, it can be quite uh, polarizing as well. And I think that we have uh, different efforts. I mean, we have the National Integration Council. We have uh, the MCCY's uh, uh, Resilience and Engagement Division with PA. Uh, they're running lots of uh, programs, right, to, to help to integrate into our local culture. And, um, and also for the different uh, racial groups to, 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 to come together. And... Um, I think uh, you know, with this diversity, we probably need a very constant, regular engagement sessions and probably need to uh, have more conversation uh, around it. And um, I uh, agree with you that, that there could be more, more efforts, but I also agree with you that devil is, is really in the details uh, because, um, uh, first of all, it, 
we need to promote a better appreciation and, and, and understanding. You know? uh, but thereafter, you have to move beyond that and talk about uh, other specific policies, plans, actions that we can uh, uh, put in place. And there'll always be different considerations, uh, different implications, different uh, trade-offs, uh, different uh, yeah, issues that we have to consider. So uh, definitely, I think uh, a lot more efforts can put in it. And we have different uh, active citizens group. Uh, you know, we have a lot more engagement sessions and you know, we have a lot more regular conversations to talk about different issues and this certainly uh, will be one of them that we can uh, put more attention to. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, Elaine, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, so I have rather mixed feelings about thinking of uh, new ways to, you know, have formalized ways of introducing uh, understanding of difference. I mean, of course, there needs to be some extent of it happening, say, you know, through the Heritage Board or um, in schools through MOE, etc. But I think actually a lot of the exciting kind of or, or innovative uh, interactions are already happening on the ground. Uh, it's a case of whether are we paying enough attention to what's happening organically. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, so uh, I've come to know of um, some companies that are uh, are part of mentoring programs for low-income um, youths, right? And uh, these are uh, professionals who have done well in their careers, uh, and they mentor low-income um, youths uh, from come from challenging circumstances. And I was pleasantly surprised, actually, in one of these mentoring sessions, to find that one of the mentors himself is an immigrant. And I think you know um, it shows that immigrants want to give back to society. This was. Uh, in this case, it was organized by the workplace, okay? But um, I, I found it refreshing that, you know, it was an immigrant mentor who had lived for some time in Singapore and can understand um, local norms and was interested, you know, to contribute to the welfare of um, children, our youths from challenging circumstances. So I think this is a, an example of um, how uh, this kind of um, productive, you know, um, interactions can take place. Uh, another example that I've um, observed through my research, uh, so I did, an, <laughs> I did a research project on uh, immigrant, uh, older immigrants and older sen Singaporean seniors, okay, in a particular neighborhood in Singapore. And one of the uh, events, okay, that we, we observed through our research was of uh, seniors, uh, women, older women, learning how to do catwalk. And we were ple pleasantly surprised, you know, by such a, such a, uh, an event, right? Um, so, the, the, the intermingling that happens, right, is uh, the, this catwalk course that, you know, we came to observe, uh, the instructor is actually uh, an older woman from China. So she's in Singapore, to, she had been taking care of her grandchildren, and then her grandchildren had grown up, and she used to be a model. So she thought, you know, why don't I teach people to do modeling? And what was nice, right, was um, there were Singaporean women, uh, seniors, who were attending that catwalk uh, course as well. So they were learning to model. They were, they were gaining confidence, you know, about um, presenting themselves on stage, dressing up in beautiful costumes. And even in terms of the costumes um, that they were showcasing during their modeling uh, uh, events, right, uh, were a mix of, say, Singaporean. It had Singaporean flavor as well as, um, you know, uh, influences from mainland China. So the seniors from mainland China, when they go back to China, they would actually bring back some of these elaborate, you know, um, period costumes that, the older women wear during modeling. And then some of the um, uh, women also wore the uh, SIAS stewardess uh, uniform. So it was a very nice mix of intercultural influences that you see happening on the ground. This was not 
socially engineered at all. It was just seniors taking an interest, you know, in doing something together uh, and then sharing experiences and resources with one another. Then the last example I can think of is one that's close to all of our hearts. It's food. So through food, right, uh, you know, we get to experience diversity. And I think, you know, Singaporeans are more accepting of the diversity that comes with food. You just have to look at the popularity of mala. It's in every hawker center in Singapore, okay? And I think, you know, food is a great way of introducing um, cultural diversity um, and gradually uh, um, sort of uh, growing acceptance uh, towards uh, immigrant cultures and flavors. So I don't know if this is already available, but uh, I look forward to one day seeing a dish like mala chili crab pasta. I think that would truly, you know, represent Singapore's multiculturalism. All right. Nice. Nice. It's interesting how the community can help to expand people's thinking in, in this space when we think about, uh, I mean, how we make sense of culture. Uh, a few more questions about culture, and I'll, I'll deal with that. And then uh, there are other broader questions about cosmopolitanism that I want to uh, take up from the set of questions. Um, Ambassador Zainal is asking, uh, one is between CMIO and, I guess, racial categorizations and multi-religious considerations, which is of greater concern if you're trying to forge a more cohesive cosmopolitan Singapore. So that's that's something I think about in terms of this, this notion about, uh, I mean, and of course, I think in terms of our city space and uh, our attempt, Singapore's attempt, I mean, to accommodate different kinds of religious structures, monuments, buildings, uh, we've had quite a bit of that. Uh, uh, any of these might be contentious, race, religion, uh, which might be a greater concern when we think about building more cohesive cosmopolitanism in Singapore. Uh, I, I didn't know whether Ms. Chang get any thoughts or Professor Ho. I think they're all very important. You know, as we know, we are multicultural, we are multi-religious, we are multi-racial, and all these are very sort of primordial uh, instincts and it has been handled very, very sensitively. And in the Asian Civilization Museum, you know, we have um, artifacts that relates to all the religion, Christianity, um, Buddhism, Hinduism, and increasingly we're also trying to bring in uh, objects that related to Sikhs, Jews, make it as not comprehensive as possible. And we know of uh, inter-religious council also trying to sort of update uh, themselves. So, and in a way, race and uh, religion is also quite um, the way closely related. And I, I would say that, uh, you know, these are very important issues that we have to address, we have to pay attention to uh, all the time. And um, uh, museum will be, you know, happy to really play a role. But I think it's also, again, whole of government, whole society, you know, it's across your workplaces, schools, and in the communities, and uh, everyone has to play a part. And I, I, I will hesitate to say that uh, the one is the place more, the more priority over the other. So looking at both, yeah. Uh, any, any thoughts, uh, Professor Ho? Do you? Yeah, I would, I would certainly agree that uh, we can't prioritize one over the other because they come together. When you have people from different cultural backgrounds, it's also likely that they have a variety of religious beliefs. And um, being a cosmopolitan city-state means. Uh, accommodating these differences, right? Uh, and I think, you know, this is where also uh, public education in terms of respecting the variety of 
uh, beliefs and values that comes with racial difference and religious difference uh, becomes very important. Um, and I know schools are already doing so much, but uh, unfortunately or fortunately, you know, schools are the best way, right, for us to reach uh, a wide demographic um, of, of uh, youths, right, who then eventually become hopefully a cohort that respects these various iterations of social difference. Continuing the thread of issues to do with race and religion, and uh, before we move on, there's some the question here that also picks my interest. It's, it's this question about growing uh, movements in the West. Uh, and I think this particularly has got to do with our heritage and uh, removing racist monuments. I think recently you've heard, uh, we've all heard some of the uh, examples in the US, for instance, where I think they're melting down various kinds of uh, structures because of their racist uh, connotations. And I mean, and history that, that was, I mean, some years back on slavery. Uh, I mean, do we have any thoughts about it? I do know that some Singaporeans have raised issues about various monuments and how it, I mean, signifies, I mean, a past which might have been uh, racist. Uh, any thoughts about that? Uh, any implications in Singapore? Of what is happening elsewhere uh, as we live in this cosmopolitan space? Ms. Chang, any thoughts first? I think in Singapore, as we know, we take the approach that we respect the history. I mean, just like the, the name of the road, I think many of them are still very hard back to the colonial period, you know, the kings, the queens, Elizabeth. And uh, I think in many other cities uh, that I know of, uh, they also try to remove that, try to remove that part of the history. And I think it's very important that, uh, that's why we need to have an anchor. We need to develop kind of confidence in our own identity, and with it, we'll be prepared to embrace you know, the diversity, embrace our history. And if you recall that in our bicentennial uh, celebration, we sort of recognize both the plus and the minuses of uh, the colonial influence. You know, it has done us a lot of good, you know, the, the, the rule of law, the use of uh, English, and um, you know, even you know, in terms of uh, a lot of the, the institutions, uh, but at the same time, we also know that there are a lot of uh, negative aspects and you know, we just have to confront it and you know, be, uh, have the confidence to, to look at it and continue to refine, to, to, to move on, to move beyond that. So I, I don't think uh, you know, it's for us to just sort of erase the history. I think the important thing is to have a very strong anchor so that we have this confidence to embrace all the, all the differences in Korean history. Elaine, did you have any thoughts on this? Except, uh, I think the only thing I, I would like to add, uh, I agree with what uh, Ms. Trump has shared, and the only thing I want to add is, uh, I think history is extremely subjective, right? So uh, how one person interprets it is different from another. And it's really dangerous when we try to whitewash what may be perceived as negative uh, uh, angles of a particular history, uh, because that then means future generations no longer recognize, you know, what has happened. So rather than say removing uh, a monument entirely, what perhaps I think would be a more productive way forward is to actually make clear what are the different perspectives towards this particular, uh, say, monument or historical episode, so that we can encourage uh, uh, people to think critically uh, and to weigh up for themselves uh, the different uh, perspectives on a particular social issue or historical matter. 
Thank you. Right, so let me move on to some more broader questions about uh, the city as cosmopolitan space. Tanansir uh, is asking about uh, cosmopolitanism. is remarking that it's not just about embracing diversity. We spent quite a while talking about that. Uh, but it's also about not being provincial in our outlook, uh, I guess also nativist. Or, um, so uh, one, of course, I think is a broader question in what way do, uh, uh, do you both uh, think about uh, Singaporeans being cosmopolitan in a sense, not being provincial, but being able to look beyond that. Uh, then I think there's also this question about uh, whether Singapore really can become cosmopolitan uh, a, a kind of city that is not so based on how rankings uh, are used, because you know the rankings kind of conjure this idea about who's more cosmopolitan, because many of them are very Western-centric, as this question says. So how can Singapore project and retain its own identity as a cosmopolitan but Asian city in its own right? So this notion about defining a very uniquely Singaporean type of cosmopolitanism uh, versus, I mean, what would be seen as cosmopolitan, maybe in some other part of the world. Uh, any thoughts about uh, these two? And we can kind of uh, answer any part of it, which might pique your interest. Yes, Ms. Cheng, go ahead. OK. Um, yeah, it's um, can be manifested in many uh, different forms, different ways. I think you mentioned about food. It's also in our arts and culture. Uh, it's in our architecture, uh, it's in our urban spaces. So I think it can take uh, many different forms. And I think we've done very well in, in food. And even in arts, I think um, in uh, one of the uh, surveys, uh, it's shown that um, uh, one of our key strengths is really the ability to have this East meets West, uh, uh, contemporary meets uh, the tradition, Technology, you know, uh, meets the, uh, 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 the tradition. So I think again, it's very important. We have a very relatively short history. Uh, our arts culture is very nascent, but I think it also gives us really the opportunity because we are not too wedded to any particular uh, form, and uh, we should take this opportunity to very boldly innovate and, 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 and progress. I, I mentioned about a few schemes that we put in place, and one of which is this Craft X design. We really try to you know, uh, um, combine to try to pair a traditional, uh, uh, traditional with modern designers, because it's very important to be forward-looking. And recently, we also saw, um, put in place an organization transformation grant for heritage businesses to innovate. I think it's quite interesting now we have a, a recipient, 88-year-old, uh, Swiss Jamal, uh, Kasura, uh, Arithmetic, to put the perfume business online. And we even have uh, these grants to help 125 years old, uh, this uh, say say Tian Heng Buddha shops, to develop a 3D database in FGs, you know. So I, I think this is really the um, important thing is even for the tradition, even for the heritage, that they really have to innovate, move forward, and in order to survive, to, to, to thrive, you know, to, to, to sustain itself. And, and Singapore is very well placed to do so. 
you know, we are really at the crossroads uh, of uh, uh, um, the trade, the ideas, the talent, and I think we should really leverage that to you know, progress and to, to make a mark. And uh, I, I, I'm very optimistic and very hopeful that uh, we'll be able to uh, make a, a, a big impact in this area. Elaine, your thoughts there? Uh, one, did you think Singaporeans, I mean, the, the structure is meant to encourage cosmopolitanism, but uh, do Singaporeans, uh, uh, Singaporeans cosmopolitan? Uh, and are we defining this uniquely? Mm, okay. Uh, I, I agree, you know, that uh, part of being cosmopolitan is uh, not being provincial or nativist in our mindsets. And uh, um, there are concerns uh, over nativism, especially, you know, when we look at some of the um, social media posts that ex uh, express kind of xenophobia or social discrimination. Um, but I think that's only one part of the picture. Okay. And these are, I think, to me, the voices that tend to get magnified. And so doing research on the ground, uh, sort of research on migrants and more recently on uh, Singaporean seniors and uh, older migrants, uh, I've actually really become pleasantly surprised by, by the nature of interactions that are happening on the ground, uh, in, as I said, in very organic and spontaneous ways. So I think, you know, um, what's really important for our policymakers to pay attention to, uh, to become aware of is actually the, the organic spontaneous ways in which people get together and manage difference. Of course, managing difference doesn't mean that, you know, uh, stereotypes go out of the window, that doesn't happen. But through repeated uh, uh, sustained interactions uh, across these uh, different uh, uh, cultural and nationality types, it can foster deeper understanding. And what's uh, necessary is to identify what brings people together, what bridges them. So through the research we did, uh, I've already mentioned the example of the catwalk, but the other thing which uh, we also noticed were, uh, uh, for example, uh, exercise activities that go on in uh, public parks, right? Early in the morning, you'll find these seniors practicing Singaporean and migrant seniors practicing Tai Chi together, Qigong together. After that, they go for a meal. Sure, they don't become the best of friends, but they at least have a conversation, understand one another's background. Uh, we also heard of uh, a case where, you know, this uh, migrant senior says, oh, if I go back to um, China, for example, you know, um, the people who, has, who does Tai Chi with me, they're welcome to visit me in China. So I think these are ways in which uh, I think the term that I used was Singaporean seniors uh, who don't move. And you often think that seniors are more parochial in their mindsets, but our research shows, shows this is not the case because they're actually experiencing diversity and transnationalism by proxy because these migrant seniors are living amongst them in HDB estates in particular. So I think the important thing here is how do we identify the productive spaces where people have uh, meaningful encounters uh, so that they can deepen understanding of one another. So whether or not, you know, um, Singapore uh, has a unique cosmopolitanism, I think uh, it is certainly the case. Uh, there's an Asian cosmopolitanism here uh, because of where we're situated, um, because of the kinds of uh, immigrants that come in from Southeast Asia, from South Asia, from East Asia, etc. But I think what's also really unique about cosmopolitanism is that it blends these Asian cultures while still uh, being very comfortable uh, with uh, sort of uh, Western ways of being, doing business, uh, food, um, uh, etc. So I think, you know, Singapore has an Asian cosmopolitanism that isn't replicated, you know, anywhere else in the world. But, you know, maybe I'm providing a biased opinion here, given that I'm Singaporean and I've lived here for most of my life. Thanks, Lee. 
Okay, so let's move on. I think we've got uh, 10 minutes or so. Uh, I'll move to that, the topic of space. And uh, Elaine, you already started to discuss it when you talked about uh, the kinds of, I mean, groups that came together. So the questions Stuart is asking about uh, more examples of spaces that could fulfill this function where you've got social anchors, diverse groups are able to be there. Uh, so how could our leisure spaces be able to do that? How can we better enable these spaces to translate into mixing across different groups? So clearly you've given an example, I think, in terms of I mean, certain kind of exercises that people do and your seniors do, but uh, can we enable these spaces to translate into mixing uh, across different groups? And, and of course, uh, another question is, of course, I mean, thinking about spaces, uh, Shamil is, Shamil Sainuddin is asking about, uh, you know, of course he's asking very specifically, is NHB planning, I guess, uh, broadly speaking, are we planning to have a proper space to appreciate the heritage of foreigners, uh, foreigners in inverted commas, and we increasingly think about uh, those who are migrant here, uh, I think we're less wanting to define them as foreigners, but uh, I think for some, I mean, they've come to live here, to work here, uh, but we don't know a lot about them, especially those who are migrants. Sometimes they are relegated to dormitories uh, way far from Singapore. So we don't, don't know a lot about their heritage and their, their culture, their way of life. So do we, do we, are we having spaces? Do we need more spaces so that we can allow some of, I mean, to be able to better know them, understand them, uh, live with them, so this doesn't cause as much friction. Uh, any thoughts here? Uh, Either one of you want to start? Yeah, go ahead, Ms. Cheng. Yeah. I think it's not necessary to have a dedicated space for that because as we know, you know very limited space and even the museums, uh, galleries are very limited. But uh, we definitely can have more programs and exhibitions. I just want to quote an example. Uh, the recent uh, National Museum of Singapore has this uh, exhibition on picturing pandemics the chronicle, the experiences of the COVID-19 experience in Singapore. And it's featured um, uh, migrants uh, living in the dormitories. So this is just an example. And uh, I certainly agree that we can do more uh, to socialize you know, broader segment of population to different migrant cultures. And um, so ACM, because it's a pan-Asia scope, and in the past, before the pandemic, we have a lot of uh, cultural programs actually featuring uh, the, the cultural performances of, of naming countries like Cambodia, Philippines. These are, again, a lot of our uh, migrants coming from Southeast Asia and uh, um, uh, this part of the world. So definitely, they, I think uh, we've done so and there can be um, uh, more opportunities to do it and can be more intentional, more deliberate. And I think it's very important that we should also um, have more grounds up uh, uh, initiatives and activities. I think the role of the museum, the role of government agencies can be a more enabling and more facilitative one and um, try to sort of really encourage uh, the different uh, groups, the uh, social services groups, the NGOs and uh, different grassroots activities to take place and we can play a more facilitative uh, role in enabling that happen. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Cheng. Uh, Elaine? Yeah. Yeah. 
any any urban space actually can potentially be a place for social mixing. It's a matter of uh, do we pay enough attention to the diverse diversity that's represented in that place? Can we find uh, the functions or programs that bridge people of different interest groups um, uh, and uh, you know at different points in their life? So in, in my view, any urban space can be a place for social mixing. Um, but there are some you know places which present or are more visibly you know productive than others, like the ones that I have mentioned. Uh, I think you know maybe I will also approach answering this question slightly differently. Uh, I think that being a cosmopolitan city, um, we also have to be attentive, of course, to uh, the underbelly, you know, the cosmopolitan city. And for a long time, you know, it has been our migrant workers. Uh, I, I am pleased to see that there are more efforts now made to recognize the uh, efforts and value the migrant workers uh, in our midst. Um, and actually, during COVID nineteen, uh, when the, when the dorms, you know, were were in the limelight. Uh, it was quite heartening, right, to see the um, uh, interest that uh, Singaporeans were taking and the initiatives that were being done, you know, to uh, help these migrant workers. So I think uh, maybe I'll, I'll give an example, right, of the Singapore Discovery Vouchers. So many Singaporeans didn't use it um, and they donated it, right? Some of it was were donated to the migrant workers who then have an opportunity, you know, to go to these uh, attractions maybe that Singaporeans may have taken for granted. Now, I think taking a step further, perhaps if, it wasn't for COVID, what would I have liked to see to make this a more productive uh, endeavor is not simply us giving the vouchers, you know, so that they can go, but us going along with them. And in that process, sharing with them how we, uh, you know, interpret, you know, for example, museums, right? We can share our own uh, kind of um, family histories, you know, talk about our own cultural backgrounds. Then it becomes more of a productive um, cultural exchange. So it's not, you know, space in itself, physical space um, isn't what creates social mixing. Programs to some extent, but I think more importantly, it's actually uh, taking an interest uh, in that immigrant so that the, they also come to understand uh, us better. Yeah. And I, I apologize for using the terms us and they because it reinforces the very dichotomy which I was actually, you know, uh, highlighting earlier. <laughs> It's so hard to run away from using some of those terminologies, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, right. just like using terms like foreigner, for instance. Exactly. Uh, I mean, uh, moving on, I mean, uh, and, and we've talked a bit about going beyond physical space. And uh, uh, someone's, I mean, someone's asking about uh, the, the social media space and how it's linked the city state. And I think there's a bit of literature on this. Uh, I mean, we have been linked to the world like never before because of how social media has allowed us to access and help people to feel part of a community globally and or regionally. Um, I mean, how, how does this shape our own thinking about cosmopolitan space in Singapore? Uh, does it change? And uh, would you say that uh, we need to address that change? Is it something that needs to be done about uh, when you think about social media and uh, cosmopolitanism and the city uh, state? Elaine, any thoughts about that? probably not a good person to answer questions on social media given I don't have a Twitter account or a LinkedIn account. <laughs> don't try finding me on those sites, okay? Um, but I would say, you know, uh, social media, of course, is a, from at least what I know, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because uh, it can create connections, but it can also result in um, circulation of uh, kind of negative stereotypes, you know, and xenophobia. Um, however, it's a necessary, uh, I wouldn't say evil, that we all have to live in because it's difficult to regulate uh, the social media space. 
um, I, I, what I would hope that uh, for every negative, you know, stereotype or xenophobic sentiment that's shared, that there will be 10 times more, you know, other people uh, who provide, you know, a balancing perspective to that. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Ms. Cheng, any thoughts about social media space and technology? <laughs> Yeah, nothing very much that I fully agree that it's a double-edged sword and then it's uh, something that we cannot run away with. And then to reach out to the younger segment of society, you have no choice but to get into social media space. It's, it's quite amazing when we do our survey and the dichotomy you know, across uh, age group is just simply amazing. You know? 50 and above, or 60 and above, it's purely traditional media, you know, uh, um, uh, mainly... Uh, broadcast, you know, uh, print, and uh, 45 to 50 to 60, it's, it's look at Facebook. And you know, in the 30s and 40s, so maybe, you know, some of the social media, and below the, you know, the 20-something, Facebook is really passe. And it's so, so stuck. I was really quite, uh, quite, quite astonished to look at, you know, these different means of uh, uh, channel of uh, outreach. So, I think social media is with us. Um, um, it, it can lead to echo chamber and you know, very close mind, but something that we will have to learn to how to live with it and how to really, uh, because, you know, because of the pandemic, we really have no choice of the digitalization. And we learn a great deal from it because it has a totally a different reach. It's really multiplied. But uh, you know, the attention span you know, is just so, so short. You know, you cannot have anything that's more than you know, 30 seconds. You know, uh, the video can be more than two minutes. So I think we just have to learn the, the language. But uh, it's, it's an important medium. And uh, um, it's definitely an instrument, a tool that has to leverage the master to promote this kind of uh, uh, integration and cultural affinity and but it's a work in progress and i think there's a lot of learning to be to be done here that's something that we've got to continue to wrestle with it's, it's yeah. a great enabler and of course it has uh, quite a, a bit of downside to it as well but i mean again this whole quest that we have about looking at how we can make this cosmopolitan space I, I close with this question about uh i mean we just have two more minutes may ping has asked a question in terms of uh the contributions of culture it says we're shaped by and also contributors to our culture how can we identify elements in the city's diverse tradition that value having a spirit of community collaboration and collective social well-being and strengthening them to become national culture so this is this quest that we have uh, whether it's in, uh, heritage making and about bringing together people from diverse backgrounds uh, this quest to identify these elements of that those different traditions, right? And the elements which perhaps I think build uh, social cohesion and uh, build this community together. Uh, any, any broad thoughts about that as we close and we think about our, our national culture in the space of cosmopolitanism? Elaine, any thoughts? Uh, so the question broadly is about how do we identify uh, elements in our city? That can uh, that value community, social well-being, etc. Is it? Yes. Uh, I think you know. There's there are lots of things going on, right? As I sort of alluded to earlier, um, through through the research we've done, you know, we found 
great examples of organic initiatives that foster um, uh, cultural uh, connections across you know, social difference. Um, I guess you know, the challenge then is how do you surface these things that are happening in the everyday, right? Uh, and if you want to actually take further steps to formalize them, for example, through um, certain uh, institutionalized programs or funding, uh, how can you make that happen? I think uh, there are two ways of doing it. One is uh, we can have more dialogues <laughs> with uh, you know, Singaporeans uh, so that they share their ideas. Uh, this, of course, has been done before. Um, uh, that, and you know, it does produce some uh, dividends. Uh, the other way, of course, is uh, for our, our, our policymakers, right, in particular, to be close to the ground, to be connecting, you know, with um, the uh, people who, who, who are their constituents, in other words, right? So I, I guess, you know, what I'm saying here is um, sometimes there is a perceived, perceived disconnect in terms of what policymakers are interested in, how do they identify, you know, programs that they want to run and fund compared to actually what people are interested to do on the ground. So I think, you know, that disconnect has to be bridged um, uh, through the two ways that I've suggested. And I'm conscious about time, so I will hand it over to Ms. Chang. <laughs> yeah, I think this is an ongoing process and uh, there are some natural sort of receptacle, you know, schools, you know, um, uh, some, some grassroots organization. Uh, but I think it has to be quite intentional, deliberate, the whole of government, whole society, at a certain time, it also has to be organic. So it's sort of mutually uh, uh, reinforcing. And at times it has to be you know, policy framework, policy plans, programs, and other times it's just to be more facilitative and uh, you know, get, uh, uh, enabling, facilitating the ground uh, uh, um, uh, activism. So I, I think it really, um, requires a lot of uh, efforts on the part of everyone um, to, to really make it happen. Thank you. Thank you. And I think with, with a lot of that effort that we put in, because politicism in Singapore can be a very positive force rather than being seen with uh, I mean, a lot of concern and people being very I mean, worried about uh, cosmopolitanism and the, and the fear about losing what we have in terms of our heritage and our place here. So with that, thank you very much to Ms. Chang and Professor Ho. Thank you for enlightening us, answering many of our questions. And uh, this has been a very, very rich discussion. So I, I'm, I'm sure the participants of this conference greatly appreciate uh, your sharing today. So thank you, everybody, for joining us. We have come to the end. I'm sorry that we didn't get to answer every single question. We tried as much as we can to answer those. And so really appreciate all your participation and putting forward some interesting thoughts for all of us. Uh, we will have subsequent sessions, so I mean, uh, please take note of them and you can look at your conference uh, program for this. And the video of today's session will be available on the online platform uh, for about two weeks if you'd like to watch it again. So thank you very much and uh, a great afternoon to everybody. Thank you. Thank you.